Welcome to the NSCA Coaching Podcast, episode 102. There are ways to influence the development of an athlete beyond reps and sets. I mean, I think we hang our hat on that because it's the model and the method that we're taught, you know, three by five, okay, you're going to get stronger, whatever. But to have an impact on what the guy thinks about nutrition or his relationship with his spouse and to take on this kind of, you know, the buzzword being kind of biopsychosocial model of, of stress or strength and conditioning, that I think requires a very different kind of professional. This is the NSCA's Coaching Podcast, where we talk to strength and conditioning coaches about what you really need to know, but probably didn't learn in school. There's strength and conditioning, and then there's everything else. Welcome to the NSCA Coaching Podcast. I'm Eric McMahon, and today we are joined by Drew Hammond, a recently named Army H2F Program Director based out of Fort Bragg, North Carolina. Drew has a unique background in the field that led him into tactical strength and conditioning. He's got a business degree from University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and a master's from the University of Edinburgh in Scotland, where he worked with college athletes and elite rugby players. Drew, welcome, man. Hey, how's it going? Good. I'm excited to talk to you today. I know we caught up recently. Uh, just I was learning a little bit more about the Army H2F program, but I want to give you a chance just to tell our listeners you know, your path into tactical strength and conditioning, you worked with athletes along the way, and now you're working in the military. Um, speak to some of the stops along the way and just how you pursued that path. Yeah, so I think, um, you know, like you said, I went to Chapel Hill pursuing a business degree, but all throughout that time, I had been kind of training on my own. I'd been eyeballing and thinking about a career in the military just by virtue of, you know, where the war was at and how old I was. Um, but I found out pretty quickly that what I was most passionate about was the training piece of things. And so when I graduated with a degree in business, I actually took a year off to coach in some gyms, reach out to some, some colleges in my hometown and do a bit of work there, but ultimately headed overseas to the United Kingdom, um, to Edinburgh, where a program had been set up by a guy by the name of Mike Stone. So it, was, it is a, a pretty prestigious uh, postgraduate strength and conditioning program. And coming in with a business degree, I think I had a little bit of a different perspective on kind of the systems that were put in place, how we thought about training, but was fortunate enough in that program to, like you said, work with some professional athletes, some international level athletes. Um, but I think the most unique part about it in hindsight, and this is what you know, I tell people kind of getting into the field, is that I was sort of born and raised in a non-American uh, strength and conditioning system. So, you know, some of the decisions that I make now, some of the conversations we will probably get into here, I think are based off of not having grown up professionally in kind of the traditional route, you know, collegiate professional sport stateside. Um, and I think that has informed a lot of the decisions that I've made along the way. So when I left that program, when I graduated, I was incredibly lucky uh, to get one of the early strength and conditioning positions within Air Force Special Warfare. That was in 2014. Um, and then over the last, you know, six, seven years have just been working within tactical strength and conditioning. So, you know, I do have a little bit of a background in kind of the, the sport realm, but for all intents and purposes, I mean, I've, I've been one of the lucky few, I think that's spent the majority, if not all of his professional career in tactical strength and conditioning. Awesome. And, you know, the army H2F program, it's a rising initiative right now. Uh, among mm -hmm. the tactical ranks in our field. And it's something that uh, a lot of coaches are interested in. I, I, even on the sports side, obviously it's been a tough year for many coaches and people are looking for different opportunities. I know your position as the H2F director is new and there are a number of contract positions, government contract positions um, currently being filled and hired and, and bid for these H2F opportunities. If you would just take us through the H2F program, what does it mean for the army and um, how's it going to impact the strength and conditioning field? Well, I think, you know, the, the intent is to sort of replicate what has been done successfully in the special operations world. When we think about, you know, what the army's done, what the Navy has done, embedding kind of these sports medicine models into squadrons and units for these very specialized organizations. And so, you know, the army has seen that and has thought there is a way that we can reduce injury rates, increase the ability for folks to deploy, save money, um, et cetera. I think, you know, if you look at the way that the military thinks of quote unquote human performance, it's, it's pretty much 
unchanged since World War II, if not before that, in the sense that PT is often left to, you know, the fittest guy in the squadron or the unit. Um, it's a lot of push-ups, calisthenics, running. And then we still have these PT tests that sort of replicate that a little bit. But what we're finding when we actually kind of, you know, put a magnifying glass on it is that passing this PT test or training in this particular way doesn't necessarily have carryover to, you know, the state of warfare as it is in, in 2021. And so the attempt of H2F is to, again, replicate that model, but on a much broader scale. So instead of dealing with a group of maybe 100 athletes at a very specialized unit, you're now dealing with, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of athletes. And so it's still this idea of embedding specialists into these units. You still have strength and conditioning coaches. You still have athletic trainers, um, physical therapists. But I think the challenge as we kind of grow this program in, in, in its early days is to figure out how to take some of the very intimate uh, intricacies of what we've seen in, you know, Aspect War and Thor 3 and Naval Special Warfare, and to try to replicate that at a much broader scale. Um, to answer kind of the second part of your question, what I think it means for the industry in terms of strength and conditioning, my hope is that it provides, you know, stability most, most importantly to a lot of these jobs. Um, you know, contracts are always going to be a little bit wishy-washy, but I think at the end of the day, it's going to be a little bit more stable than working in a collegiate or a professional setting where when the coach leaves, you know, there you go. Um, and the other thing that I hope it does for folks getting into this field is provide a little bit more of a lucrative, you know, pay level or salary level. Um, and then the other thing too, is just, I think, you know, when we think about working with the military, there is that kind of piece of it where you're working for folks that are, you know, serving our country. And I think that's something that's important. And it's something that, you know, with me being a tactical strength and conditioning specialist, it is a, a reason why you go to work every day, because the athletes that you get to work with do have that extra, you know, bit of motivation. Um, so, yeah. You know, this is interesting because, you know, I hear you speak to sort of the evolution of PT in the military. And now it's, taking things that have happened sort of in the special forces and applying them um, more to big army or to, to more of the, the, the rest of the troops. And, um, but I think it's interesting too, is that while PT has been uh, an ingrained part of the military culture, strength and conditioning and the strength and conditioning roles are relatively new. And I mean that in terms of the curriculum of strength and conditioning or the emphasis on strength and power and, and elite human performance for tactical athletes. Um, how is tactical strength and conditioning different in the current landscape than a traditional college model or professional sports model that, that you've mm -hmm. experienced? You know, I'll speak to kind of my own thoughts on it. And I know that this is something that we could, you know, like anything in this industry, you could debate it to the end of the earth. But um, I think the, the biggest difference that I have found in my experience with strength and conditioning on the tactical side is just that you're, you're working in a chaotic system. So, you know, for example, if I'm working with a, with a football team, I know ahead of time what my schedule is. I know when the games are, um, you know, that's, that's very well planned out. And I mean, in an NCAA model, it's planned out down to how many hours you can spend with the athlete. So, there's still complexity in that system, but there's a lot more control in terms of the number of variables you have to deal with as a specialist. Um, on the tactical side, we don't necessarily have that. And it's interesting because when I first started, you know, I, I stepped into this squadron as the strength and conditioning coach coming right out of graduate school. And I had been taught all these different periodization models and had seen all these Excel sheets and these templates. And my thought was, okay, you know, these guys deploy, then they come home and then they deploy, they come home. I kind of have this, you know, in season, off season model. I think that works really well with the things I had been taught in school, the stuff I had read. But what's interesting is that when the guys are, are home, that's actually when it's the most chaotic, when they're going away for training trips, you know, they might have appointments across base one day. They may just not have shown up for PT because the night before they were, you know, doing a jump or they were diving or whatever. So there really is no way in my opinion, to lay long-term planning in the traditional sense onto a tactical strength and conditioning model. Um, you know, you, you can try and, and a lot of guys do and we'll say that it works, but I think if we really, really look at it, you know, I can create 12 weeks of training and it can look really nice and linear and 
this percentage up to that percentage and here's how much better you're going to get at these variables but when guys start missing a week here two days there you know a month here um it, it just kind of falls apart and so you know, that took me a couple of years to, to kind of think through and recognize because for, you know, a long time, I would just, you know, subconsciously or consciously kind of blame it on and, and blame it in quotes, but blame it on the athlete and say, you know, he, he's just not choosing to stick with this program. Like surely he could find time to do these things. Um, and, and a big turning point for me, I think, was when I looked at some of the work, uh, for example, that John Kiley has put out on periodization and, and some of the guys out there that are really looking at the training of athletes is more of an auto-regulated kind of emergent fluid, you know, coach athlete relationship, but it's a lot more of a soft skills model, so to speak. Um, and when I kind of opened the door for the athlete to be much more involved in the training process and allow it to be more individualized and more fluid um, and, and not so much long-term, but more adaptive. Um, you know, I, I personally saw a lot of success in terms of athlete performance, compliance, buy-in. Um, and, and those are things that I think a lot of guys in this industry struggle with because we're still thinking of this problem in a kind of traditional paradigm where, you know, macrocycles, mesocycles, microcycles, undulating, like all these buzzwords that we all know. Um, but I think one thing that we haven't really thought through or been equipped to think through is this critical thinking piece of if none of these things hold true that I think should fit into this model, how do I react to that? What does my training look like? You know, if, if I, if in my head, every Monday is a high intensity squat session or whatever, do I have the tools in place to change that? If athlete ABC doesn't show up on Monday, um, because that I don't think is ever going to change in the tactical space. You're never going to have much stability. It's always going to be a complex system or a chaotic system. And when you try to lay complexity on top of that, I think it just becomes unsustainable. You know, talking to you about this, I know we've talked offline about this too. Um, it's, it's really interesting uh, to take it sort of longitudinally and you, and you speak to that the way you look at the entire uh, strength and conditioning field. And then you look at where the current state of tactical strength and conditioning is at. And um, it takes me back, you know, you think of the beginnings of this field, you know, mm -hmm. um, Boyd Epley, uh, and it was largely based on a college football strength and conditioning model. Yeah. And I, I think we all have that graphic or image of, you know, the, the 10 principles yep. that, that they were, yeah. They, and we, and that, that has lasted, you know, that's lasted yeah. in our field uh, all the way up. And, you know, we all kind of jump into this field at different points. And I, mm -hmm. and so I know for me, uh, things really took off in the early two thousands as I'm getting out of college and, and you see academic programs in the field taking off and strength and conditioning and, that was around the time that you started hearing of nonlinear undulating. You know, we've talked to uh, Andrea Hootie this past year, and she was at the Advanced Periodization Virtual Clinic talking about some of the things they were doing at UConn in the early 2000s with Dr. Kramer. And this flexible programming, it's really interesting with all the tech that's out there now, auto-regulation, hearing Dr. Mann speak about this, velocity-based training, it has really moved more towards uh, fluid periodization, flexible periodization, nonlinear undulating. We have all these terms now yeah, yeah. and we are still sorting through it. So it's really interesting to see tactical uh, taking off and strength and conditioning still being, uh, I think there'd be some people that say it's not new, but in a way it's young, you know, and the way yeah. we look at our field is young. Well, this is now a very uh, new area that it's taking off. And um, I think it's really interesting to think about it from a standpoint of, well, back in the Boyd Epley days, they had to put those principles in place to solve a problem. Yeah. Now you yeah. have a different problem. You have different challenges. And so it's going back to the drawing, drawing board of creating principles and methods to work in that environment. Yeah, and so exactly. I think that's so interesting, man. Yeah. Well, and I think too, I mean, and we spoke about this previously, but the industry as a whole, I think, and I don't think it's exclusive to strength and conditioning. I think, 
in a lot of industries, you probably see this, but there is this, this very path dependent bias where, you know, we come into this and I've seen guys come into this as strength coaches and they're very well intentioned, but it's this mindset of, you know, it worked here, therefore it will work here. Um, and, you know, the joke that we had was kind of football players in camouflage, this idea that I'm coming from a collegiate or a professional space into this tactical world. The equipment's the same. The gym looks the same. You know, the end result is the same, get bigger, faster, stronger, whatever. But I don't think you can do that successfully in this traditional mindset of like, I meet with the athlete and then I disappear into my secret laboratory and create this plan. And then I give him this plan and then, oh, wait, he's not going to be here next week. Well, what am I going to do now? Um, so, yeah, I, I think to your point, it does require, you know, an examination of the principles and maybe even a rewriting of the principles. Um, and, and those are the kind of conversations that I think are fun to have, especially in these early days of, of tactical strength and conditioning. You know, I speak to this a lot is that, you know, our field has gotten more professionalized in the past 20, 30 years where we have kicked off the negative stigma of, you know, meathead strength coaches. And one thing I want to ask you about in the, in the military environment, I think professionalism and character are, are major themes across the board. Speak to the value of professionalism for strength coaches but especially in the tactical military environment? You know, I think um, for me, I was in a unique position because when I started, you know, I, I took over the program that I worked at out in Arizona when I was 24. So I was the same age as a lot of the guys that I was working with. Um, having said that, my life experiences have been very different where at that point I had gone to college, I'd gone to graduate school, I'd been overseas. Um, and a lot of these guys that were the same age as me or younger had grown up in the military where you may not necessarily have, I mean, you have experiences, sure, but you, your exposures are a little bit different. Um, and, and so as I grew up with those guys and took on kind of a more senior level role and started to become older than the guys that were coming in, you know, because in the military, you get new faces every year, every two years. Um, so to be able to stand there as a professional, to present yourself well, to these guys that are rotating through and are looking at you as the person who is now in charge of their fitness, um, I think is incredibly important because, you know, the other thing that's interesting about tactical strength and conditioning is that just about every single guy that you have coming through the door has gotten there of his own accord. I mean, he may have done some programming online or he may have worked with a coach at some point, but he has gotten to this point in his career because he has suffered mentally and physically to do that. And so he has a lot of faith in himself as an athlete. And I think I found out very early on that for him to then hand the reins over to you, I mean, that's not something that I think any coach should take as a given. And there's not, you know, of all the guys that I know in my network, I, I can't think of a single one who has 100% compliance in his program. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. I think early on, I took that very personally when a guy, you know, quote unquote, didn't want to do my program or whatever. Um, but what I found was that there are ways to influence the development of an athlete beyond reps and sets. I mean, I think we hang our hat on that because it's the model and the method that we're taught, you know, three by five, okay, you're going to get stronger, whatever. But to have an impact on what the guy thinks about nutrition or his relationship with his spouse and to take on this kind of you know, the buzzword being kind of biopsychosocial model of, of stress or strength and conditioning, that I think requires a very different kind of professional. Um, we, we walk into these programs assuming that we sit on this pedestal of knowledge when it comes to training. And that, that may be true in the sense that I could probably, you know, get a better score on the CSCS than a random athlete that I worked with. But I do think that there is so much more to the training process than, than just that. Um, and so to be able to be vulnerable around these guys, to have humility, to ask them for their input in the training, you know, what do you want to do? Um, I think that's a huge leap for a lot of coaches because it allows them to kind of surrender some of the control that they think they might have over that whole process. But it gets back to that fluid piece of training where, you know, for this to be a successful relationship between athlete and coach, there has to be give and take on both sides. And that's not necessarily something that I think a lot of guys are, are taught or mentally equipped to kind of wrap their minds around, so to speak. For sure. And, you know, we, we've touched on some of the, the differences uh, between, you know, traditional sport-based strength and conditioning and tactical, but 
one of the things that when I, as I learned about the H2F program, it's very collaborative. You're working with athletic trainers, physical therapists, um, other professionals. Mm-hmm. And um, that is one of the, I think that's one of the major themes that strength and conditioning students across the board have to learn uh, oh, yeah. to work well in a college environment, professional sports. But what is that collaboration like? And um, with the new facilities and H2F growth, you know, how is that um how is that collaboration developing? I think it's a, it's a reframing of athlete management into more of kind of, you know, a, a spectrum model, so to speak, where, you know, me on the one end as the strength and conditioning coach, my role is very proactive and that I am there to take an athlete from point A to point B. Um, but it would be naive of me to assume that that happens in a silo. So having an athletic trainer, physical therapist, you know, dietitian there, to help build that foundation, I think is incredibly important. And I think that that's one of the things that as a young practitioner, it's important to recognize because, you know, I I can speak from experience here, walking into a meeting full of, you know, folks that have PhDs, folks that have gone to medical school, surgeons, et cetera, it behooves you to be able to understand and speak the same language. Because what will happen very quickly is that for lack of having one of those degrees or having that experience, your role in that in that collaborative process will often be not necessarily looked down on, but almost taken kind of as like, you know, okay, that's, that's the strength coach. Um, and I think it gets back to kind of what you mentioned with the meathead strength coach philosophy. I mean, that's not just something that exists in our industry. It's a stereotype that people outside of our industry think of when they think of strength and conditioning. Um, and so being able to work with a team that is very medically based, that is very injury prevention based and may not necessarily be so focused on, you know, improving your back squat or your deadlift or your sprint times. Um, I think it's important not to, not to have a medical degree, but to be at least able to understand basic anatomy, um, to be familiar with kind of the return to play or the return to duty process and what that looks like and where those different roles fit. Because there's been times in the past where, you know, I'll, I'll turn an athlete over to an athletic trainer and he's kind of taking point on that guy's performance. And then we'll reach, we'll reach a threshold where he then transitions back to me, but that's not something where me and the athletic trainer never talk. I mean, I was fortunate in my previous position to have an excellent relationship with my injury prevention folks. And there were days where we would be working side by side on the floor with an athlete and you couldn't really differentiate between who's the strength coach, who's the athletic trainer. And I think that's ideal. Um, and so when we look at H2F and kind of the idea behind it, it's, it's a continuation of that collaborative model. Um, and I don't think that that was something I was fully aware of as a young practitioner, just this idea that being a strength coach also means working within a sports medicine team. It made me think of just a project I worked on years ago of, I was digging into just random college strength and conditioning websites and looking at the mission statement or the philosophy behind all of the programs. And we probably all would agree with this, um, you know, pretty much the general goals of most strength programs are going to be increased performance and decrease injuries. We, we communicate that in a lot of different ways. We use a lot of different terminology and we approach it from different angles, but those generally across the board hold true. Mm -hmm. And, you know, listening, you know, and just knowing the collaborative model and how, how important the medical aspect is to that. I want to ask you how important is the performance side of this shift towards army H2F and what are some of the performance capabilities that you're targeting with your strength program? You know, I think it's interesting, and I was I was thinking about this a lot the other day because, you know, we don't really have a way to objectify performance in combat the same way that we do for, you know, rugby or football, where I can put a GPS on a guy and I can get a sense of what the demands of the game are, and then I can train him to that. We don't have that level of clarity yet, and I don't know if we ever will, for, you know, combat. And so that makes it tough when you're trying to look at all the different options you have available to you in terms of performance. And, you know, should I increase his squat? Should I increase his deadlift? Should he be faster? Should he be able to run longer? I mean, yes and no, because I've seen, and I think we've all seen 
guys step into our facility who aren't very strong, who can't run very far, who aren't very fast, but when they're out in you know the field, they're the best operator that we have. And so it's hard to then sit there and try to tell guys like, oh, you have to do this, you have to do that, because there's not necessarily a one-to-one carryover for performance in combat. I mean, yes, you could, you know, make a guy more resilient, more robust. You could work towards injury prevention. And I think that gets to the point of ideal in the tactical sense is injury-free. It's not necessarily a 500-pound deadlift or max reps on a bench press. It's injury-free. And so every performance decision that I make is through the lens of preventing injury, um, which isn't to say that we're still not going to drive up all these different characteristics that we're all familiar with, you know, strength, endurance, speed, et cetera. But I don't think that you can make the case for, hey, we really, really need to push this variable at the expense of all others, because at the end of the day, I'm not really comfortable enough to say that it matters that much. And again, this isn't to bash any of those performance metrics. It's just to say, a guy who can deadlift 200 pounds could be equally successful in the field as a guy who can deadlift 600 pounds. So where is that trade-off in terms of, do we need to make this guy that much stronger or do we just focus on solid all around training? And I think a very kind of tangible way to think about that. And, and I fall into this trap all the time where I'll kind of revert back to, you know, your traditional lifts, your traditional strength parameters, your traditional endurance parameters, but you may come across a guy who just doesn't like doing back squats or he doesn't like deadlifting. And in a traditional model, you would then have to have this debate with this athlete to say, okay, well, here's why you need to do this, that, and the other, because it's important for your sport or whatever. But in our, our case, it's not necessarily that important. And if he chooses not to do those movements, that's okay. And I have to be equipped to then modify the training to allow for him to create the buy-in to adhere to the training to then lead to a lower incident of injuries. Because I think when you look at the statistics across the field in tactical strength conditioning, the injuries that are happening most frequently in the gym are those that are happening with guys that aren't adhering to a sound strength and conditioning program. And there isn't a commander that I can think of that mandates that the athletes work with that staff. It's very much a voluntary program at this point. And I think it probably always will be. And so there is that element of buy-in that I think is important to the performance piece that you were asking about. And some of that has to do with the recognition of it's okay to be a little bit more varied in your exercise selection. It's okay to skip this in favor of that and then build around it using the principles that we kind of all already know. Um, you know, I, I think I touched on the question, but if I didn't, let me know and I'll kind of bring it back in. <laughs> no, that's awesome. I, I, I think this is really interesting because it's not always clear in sport either. I think we, right. we like to think it is, um, but just the difference between young athletes kind of in that ideal athleticism range and a veteran athlete who just knows their sport and knows the game and knows how to perform, but maybe isn't at their peak athleticism. Yeah. Uh, anymore. Right. Um, how do you train that person? Does that change? Um, how do you back off from the traditional squat heavy and deadlift heavy model that, that we all sort of grow up with and can justify scientifically? Yeah. And that's the hard thing is that we're, we want to be evidence-based. We want, and most of the research in the field is going to lend itself towards the big lifts and, yep. um, that traditional, um, powerlifting foundations in a way, uh, not, yeah. you know, and, yeah. and that's just one way to look at it. But I think it's really interesting too. Um, there's a lot of more functional style implements making their way into weight rooms now. I don't know if it's, you know, the chicken or the egg, you know, how much <laughs> tactical has, has influenced that, you know, or is it just the, the fitness machine just pumping out all this different equipment and we're being resourceful and learning how to apply yeah. that. But I think it's really interesting. And I think it's, uh, empowering for coaches you know just in the way we look at mobility and mm -hmm. and quality movement right like you know how much quality movement emphasis are we bringing into our weight rooms and you can make arguments against some of the big lifts you know and that they're restrictive to movement you know on the battlefield or mm -hmm. when soldiers are deployed or even even uh, for field sport athletes who need to move well, who are deficient in movement patterns. So 
I want to ask you, and, and, and I think this is, this could probably be a whole podcast in itself, but uh, I want to ask you, you know, deep dive into the training, functional implements in the weight room. If you're, you have that athlete who doesn't, you know, isn't going to squat or isn't going to deadlift, what do you base your programming on? Oh man. Yeah. That could be an entire podcast. Um, <laughs> so my, I guess as a starting point, my kind of five key um, pieces of this puzzle, so to speak, when I think of programming, and this is irregardless of what equipment we're going to use, what type of athlete, my, you know, the training is going to be athlete centric first and foremost, which means that the athlete is going to drive more of the training decisions than I think most coaches are used to um, in the sense that if he doesn't want to squat, if he doesn't want to deadlift, if he's had a bad experience with those or flip side, if he does really want to do that, you know, Olympic lifting, I think is a good example where if I was given your average tactical athlete, I probably wouldn't program full snatches, full cleans because there's really just not a need for it. And the training time that it takes to become proficient could be better spent elsewhere. Having said that I have worked with guys that have come to me with a background in Olympic lifting and so in an athlete centric type of model, I would feel more comfortable including that because I know that he's already got some proficiency in those movements. And then I can just sort of work around that as I build out his training. The second piece that I'll always have is, is some form of auto-regulation. And I think that gets into the athlete centric piece as well, where in my opinion, a percentage based model doesn't really hold water in a tactical training environment simply because if I sit there and try to do a top-down plan of, you know, eight, 10, 12 weeks going from this percentage of your max to that percentage of your max, it looks very nice on an Excel template. And me as a human being, it satisfies my sense of like pattern dependency. But realistically, if he starts to miss those days, if he misses a week here, like we talked about a week there, most of those athletes will then come back into the gym. And because they're very type A motivated guys, they will try to hit that session but they've just missed the previous two and th you know, three weeks. That's where I think we see injuries occur is when we try to dictate ahead of time what the training is gonna look like. So when you have a layer of auto-regulation and you know, it could be RPE, it could be any of those tools that we're sort of taught, it allows for a little bit of flexibility in the overload of what you're, you're training and where your stimulus is heading. And then you as the coach and more of kind of a bottoms up model respond to that adaptation as it's occurring, which kind of gets to the third piece of this, which is in my mind, your training needs to be very emergent. Um, you know, and there's a great powerlifting coach, Mike Tashira, that talks a lot about this, but when I plan a training, you know, phase for a guy, it may only be one or two weeks because that may be the extent of time that I have control over what his training looks like. And I can take that week of training. I can see how he responds and adapts to it. And then that will inform what the next week of training looks like. And then that informs what the next week looks like, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So you're still working within this long-term planning model in the sense that I know his deployment is this many months away, or I know because we've talked to each other that he has to go, you know, to a training trip two months from now or whatever. So I'm still thinking long-term but I may not necessarily know, you know, 10 months from now that on Tuesday, he's going to squat three sets of five at 85% of his one rep max, which if you look at traditional training, it assumes that we can do that. I mean, if I look at an Olympic cycle, I might be able to say, just looking at the Excel sheet, Hey, two years from now on Wednesday, the 15th of February, I know he's going to do three sets of three on the power clean, this, that, and the other. I think in an emergent model, it allows for you to be a little bit more adaptive and responsive to what's actually happening with the athlete. And then the other kind of pieces of that, I mean, concurrent training is huge in the tactical space, the ability to get stronger and move further at the same time and the interplay of those variables and what that looks like in terms of stimulus management on behalf of the coach. Um, you know, I've seen guys fall, I've seen coaches usually fall into one of two camps where they either have a background in, in weightlifting, powerlifting, et cetera, and they're very, very good at that kind of training, but they may not necessarily have the tools to improve a guy's mile time. The other side is you have guys that have a background in endurance training, and they're very, very good at improving you know, your VO2 max, whatever, but they may not necessarily understand the basics of resistance training. And so I think it behooves the coach to spend time looking at all of that literature 
and have the tools in place to create a concurrent training model. And then the other piece to that is just having training that's flexible. And this gets into the auto-regulated kind of emergent thing we already talked about. But I found very early on that when I gave a guy, you know, a week or two of training, very quickly, he started to move those days around based on how he was feeling, what he had done the day before, if he'd gone out, you know, on a jump mission the night before, and he came in on the next day, he may want to do an active recovery day, and I may have had something else planned. And so guys would start to shuffle training around. And it fell on me to kind of create sessions that could stand on their own and be moved around throughout the week, throughout every two weeks, whatever. And there's some literature on this in terms of this quote unquote flexible periodization model. But I think building something that's resilient enough to withstand the athlete's intervention is important. And once you have kind of those five pieces in place, the puzzle itself kind of gets formed as you go. Um, you know, regardless of whether the athlete favors more quote unquote functional type movements or traditional powerlifting type movements, or if, you know, he has a background in running and doesn't necessarily buy into lifting, as long as you adhere to those kind of key principles, it doesn't really matter what ingredients you use, you'll still end up with an athlete that's able to perform. Um, so that may have been its own podcast just right there, but that would be my answer to the question of, of how you handle kind of this vast array of different different athletes that you're exposed to in tactical strength and conditioning. The field gets really big when you look at it like this, because I mean, even, even just looking at the squat, if you start programming partial movement squats or speed squats, I mean, the squat can become 50 yeah. different exercises in itself. Uh, and so we take things really big, you know, from an extreme high level and can program on that, but then to bring it back to the athlete, uh, and one of the things I heard and what you said is it's okay to make practical decisions toward exercise selection. And we actually should do that, um, for how many coaches, how many athletes we need to work with for the time investment it's going to take to teach a movement just because we can teach it. Doesn't mean we, doesn't mean we should teach it given all the other variables. Those are hard, hard decisions for a lot of coaches. Um, and I think we've all been there on that. Um, you spoke to the value of strength coach needs. We need to have a lot of tools in the toolbox. Mm -hmm. And that's not just different variations of the squat. It's across our, uh, you know, it's the, it's the strength and conditioning. You know, our, uh, <laughs> nobody really likes the, nobody really likes the C. I've even heard coaches drop the C from their job titles. And it's like, you know, it's the, it's the most feared letter in the alphabet for, for a lot of us. And uh, we all go through those phases too, just in our personal fitness journey and all these things. So, yeah. um, but oh, yeah. I also, I also like that you linked flexible periodization models and flexible uh, training styles with monitoring and assessment and yeah. the process of auto-regulation, because the more, the more eyes you have, on the athlete, uh, on the training that's going on and the readiness of that athlete, the more tactful we can be and the more nimble we can be in our programming for that athlete in that right. moment. How can we be more individualized and be more specialized when, I mean, yeah, granted your, your program and your, uh, the army's putting more resources into it, but traditionally we don't have an entire staff dedicated just to strength right. and conditioning that can accomplish every single thing. We all need to be very versatile and, and, uh, and have a lot of, uh, uh, processes going on. But, um, I, and, and the last thing that I thought was so powerful was optimize the time you have with the athlete. If you only have two weeks, you shouldn't be training for six months or a year because you can't necessarily control that. We all right. believe we need to control what we can control. Well, you should start with those two weeks that you have, especially with a new athlete that mm -hmm. you're working through that buy-in process. Those are all things we talk about as strength coaches. And in a lot of ways, we, we all believe that on some level, what you're saying, but putting it in practice and taking it from that 30,000 foot view down to, down to the ground, it takes a lot of questioning and thought. And uh, I really like hearing your perspective on that. I think, you know, it's, it's one of those things where you have to be very critical of yourself as a practitioner because a trap that we all fall into is that we get carried away with showing all the things that we know 
to athletes. I mean, when we step onto the floor, we have a captive audience, right? Like we're there as the professional that knows all the things, but I see coaches and I've, I've made this mistake myself. You know, if it takes you 20 minutes to explain how to do a deadlift, that's 20 minutes of training time that you're never going to get back. And if you only see this athlete for a week or two weeks, like you said, well, there went 20 minutes of training because you as the coach kind of got this, you know, sense of entitlement is probably the wrong word, but you got this kind of high off of showing all the things that you know. And there's a time and a place to do that, which gets to your other point about how does this individualized model work on an industrial scale in something like H2F or in special operations. And I think what it comes down to is spending a lot of time and effort educating your athletes to be self-sufficient. Um, you know, having conversations, and I, I get this a lot when I tell coaches that I rely really heavily on RPE. Well, what if your athlete doesn't understand how to use RPE? Well, then I'm gonna spend, instead of taking 20 minutes to explain a deadlift, I'm gonna take 20 minutes to explain RPE to this guy so that when he disappears for a month, I can still prescribe to him some sense of individualized auto-regulation and I can be comfortable in the fact knowing that he's not going to push some arbitrary percentage, you know, of, of his one rep max and create a, a scenario where he might get injured. Um, so when you invest in education, both of your athletes and of your staff, I think you set your program up so much better for this kind of individualized tailored model because everyone is equipped to function, you know, on their own basically. And then it's, the strength coach standing there almost as the conductor of the orchestra saying, okay, here's the direction we're going to go in, but it's on you to play the instrument. And I'm just going to make sure the sound kind of, you know, syncs together nicely, which is a weird analogy, but that's, you know, basically how it works. <laughs> yeah, awesome. So there's a lot of coaches pursuing tactical strength and conditioning positions right now. And mm -hmm. uh, that's from the sports side but also young coaches getting into the field that see this as the path that they want to pursue. Um, there's a number of master's programs coming about in tactical strength and conditioning, uh, which are much more specialized than, than the programs we had access to a few mm -hmm. years back. Um, what advice do you have for young coaches and aspiring coaches uh, pursuing tactical strength and conditioning and just sort of how they should go about it getting opportunities in the field, but also advancing in the field? Yeah, I think um, there's kind of two lines of thought. I think the first one is just getting your foot in the door and getting the job. Um, and, you know, that requires at a very basic level, generally speaking, what these contract companies will look for is, you know, a CSCS, in some cases, a master's degree, at the very least, a bachelor's degree. Um, you know, I've seen anywhere in the window of kind of three to five years of experience, not necessarily in tactical, but in professional collegiate, um, et cetera. So, you know, right now I would say 99% of tactical strength and conditioning is through contract companies that are awarded these positions on behalf of the government. And so then it's on the contracting company to make the decision as to who they're going to hire. And that's why when you know, young practitioners or even folks looking to transition from, you know, sport into tactical, they see a lot of these job offers that are posted without necessarily recognizing that that company is just looking to accumulate resumes so that when they make their bid to the government, they can show that they have the resources to fulfill that contract. Why that's relevant, I think, is because oftentimes I get hit up on LinkedIn or Instagram from folks looking for advice on how to get into this field and time and again, they say, you know, I've applied to 10 companies, 15 companies, and I've never heard back. And I think the piece there is just to stay on top of it, to understand how contracting works, to understand which companies are likely to win which bids, and to focus your efforts on those companies. But at the end of the day, because they are going to have, you know, 100, 200 resumes in front of them, have those basics in place, you know, have that CSCS, have that degree, have those years of experience, but then have a way to differentiate yourself. Because at the end of the day, we all have the same stuff on our resume. Like we've all done the same courses or we've gone to the kind of the same schools or we've all taken the CSCS, but you know, have you, and I had this conversation with a guy who had just gotten out of the army the other day where his key differentiator was the fact that he himself had been a tactical athlete. And I said, you know, so speak to that in your cover letter, speak to that in your resume. So that when the recruiter is looking at those experiences, he sees that you have the basic qualifications, but he also sees that you've gone above and beyond and have served your country and have these experiences built up 
you know, as a tactical athlete. And that's not to say that if you haven't served in the military, you can't get these jobs. It's just a challenge to say, find something that differentiates you from the rest of the field. And I think that's probably the same in just about any industry you would look in. I think the second line of thinking though, in terms of how to become the best practitioner for your athletes, I would encourage coaches to look at resources outside of strength and conditioning, look at you know, business development books, look at leadership books, read material on you know, biology, read material on systems theory, read material on you know, economics. Like all of these things will provide you a slightly different perspective on this puzzle that we're all working on, which is athlete management. And time and again, you know, I work with coaches where they walk into the office day one and like they've only read three books and it's the same three books that all of us have read. And so I know right off the bat that they aren't going to really be able to think outside of the box the way that I need them to. Whereas if somebody has spent time looking at, you know, economic theory and how that might work, or if somebody is comfortable with systems theory and how to apply different, you know, methods to handling chaos. Well, now I know that I have somebody that can think critically and can think on their feet. And as we've kind of already talked about the way that the tactical training environment is set up requires somebody to be able to do that. So if you don't have, the tools in place to solve the problem, I don't necessarily think you should put a bunch of time and energy towards solving that problem just yet. I think you should go and spend some time developing yourself as a professional in areas outside of traditional strength and conditioning to better address the needs of your athletes. Awesome, awesome advice right there. And I'll, uh, I'll put you on the spot a little bit, but just a couple resources that are your go-tos um, that you would recommend oh, for fellow coaches. You know, I think, um, you know, I've probably beat this horse to death, but anything written by John Kiley, uh, he's, he's kind of one of the preeminent periodization theorists or critics out there. Um, all his papers are for free online. So anything written by him, I would recommend just to put yourself in a position to start to think critically about your own processes. Um, he's been a great mentor of mine over the years and is somebody that I've bounced a lot of stuff off of as I've built out my own concepts around tactical training. Um, having a great background in both the basics of like we talked about strength, but then also the basics of conditioning, I think are important. And so, you know, books like Science of Running, Jack Daniels Running Formula, they sit really nicely alongside, you know, the NSCA's fundamentals, uh, you know, practical programming for strength. I think if I walk into somebody's office or if I ask a strength coach to bring, you know, their top five books, if, if those books are in there somewhere, then I think that gives me a sense of, okay, this guy understands both sides of that equation, if you will. Um, you know, there's been a lot of interesting work on the physiology side of things with guys like Evan Pycon, Aaron Davis, um, they are looking at the literature and challenging some of the things that we think about in terms of traditional energy system training, traditional models of training. And it's not to overcomplicate things, but it's to actually allow us to recognize that at the end of the day, you know, training is training. It's not necessarily a puzzle that we have to figure out how to put together. It's really just a complex evolving problem. And so I think, you know, thinking fast and slow being another book, I think is important for guys, but I just go back to anything you can get your hands on around this idea of, of systems theory, of, of chaos theory, of complexity. Like These are very soft skills, but, I, you know, they're very important when we look at, at training and the way that we think about how do we solve, you know, this particular puzzle for this particular, particular athlete, and then this athlete and this athlete. Um, I think I had a few resources thrown in there, but yeah, those would be kind of where I would direct folks when they, when they come to me. And actually um, that John Kiley's paper on, you know, periodization is mandatory reading for anyone that works with me. So I would say that's probably my resource number one for folks. And then Eric's podcast, awesome. obviously. No, it, <laughs> oh, thank you. No, I, I know, um, you know, the other, one of the other H2F directors uh, at Fort Bragg, Brendan Hutman, you know, and he kind of piggybacked some of the advice that you had. And I heard him speak recently on, you know, coaches nowadays, we need to have a superpower, something that differentiates us, us from the other coaches. Um, the, the reps and the sets aren't going to get it done. We all have that. 
and uh, it it really is good advice just to you know you can learn from anything it's more how you approach it and how you take it away i think there's so much value and and i love how you really take things to a like high level and more it can be a little abstract and difficult to bring it back down but it, it is really valuable to do that because it, it enables you as a coach to read any book and find meaning in it uh, whether that comes from business economics um, obviously the sciences for what we do and the sports science side a lot of the technology you know one interesting thing transitioning from pro sports to the nsca i've actually learned so much just in meetings with our it department about like software as a service that's an it concept but we yeah. employ that all the time as coaches and there's academic theory and thought process behind this that's been laid out that we're not exposed to unless we really branch out into other areas so I know there are a number of voices in the field that speak to that, but it is really valuable to look beyond the essentials text. I'm not saying don't buy the essentials text, you know, <laughs> as the NSCA uh, coaching program manager here, but, you know, look beyond the essentials text. I said it, but no, it is great advice. And uh, Drew, man, really appreciate having you on the podcast today. Yeah, no, it's been great. Yeah. How can, how can coaches get in touch with you? Um, you know, LinkedIn and Instagram are probably the two best. Um, I think my Instagram is just Drew Hammond, to be honest. And then LinkedIn, I'm easy to find. Um, I like to be as open as possible in terms of how I program, how I think about it, helping people get into the field. So yeah, don't hesitate to reach out. Um, I'm happy to help guys out. Awesome. That was Drew Hammond, recently named Army H2F Program Director at Fort Bragg. Drew, great connecting. And to our listeners, thanks for tuning in. Also, a big thanks to Sorenex Exercise Equipment. We appreciate their support. From the NSCA, thank you for listening to the NSCA Coaching Podcast. We serve you, the coaching community. So follow, subscribe, and download for future episodes. We look forward to connecting with you again soon and hope you'll join us at an upcoming NSCA event or in one of our special interest groups. For more information, go to nsca.com. This was the NSCA's Coaching Podcast. The National Strength and Conditioning Association was founded in 1978 by strength and conditioning coaches to share information, resources, and help advance the profession. Serving coaches for over 40 years, the NSCA is the trusted source for strength and conditioning professionals. Be sure to join us next time.